a lot of composers, like old composers from hundreds of years ago, have horrible stories, tragic stories behind them, and they never got famous and artists and stuff. But their music is brilliant and fine today, and everybody loves it. Welcome to episode nine of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest on this episode is Patty Sterling, or P. Sterl, to use her pen name slash handle as a writer with Puncture. Now, it wasn't until early 2019 when I first came across an issue of Puncture, so pretty far into the writing slash research for the book. Uh, I was helping someone sift through some old boxes of memorabilia and whatnot and came across issue five of Puncture, which, among other things, included features on Toiling Midgets and Flipper, both of whom were referred to at that point in the past tense, suggesting that they had uh, broken up. And uh, evidently that did seem to be the case at that point, late 1983. Um, but I was able to take some photos, some some uh, scans of of a few pages, but I didn't have the full magazine, and so all I could see at the bottom of these articles that I had scanned was uh, P-Sterl, P-S-T-I-R-L, and I thought, well, who was this? Later that year, later 2019, lo and behold, uh, the first six issues of Puncture were republished in an, an anthology, Puncture, the first six issues, and so I bought that and discovered P-Sterl was indeed Patty Sterling, and that she had done a lot of other writing that was definitely relevant to what I was looking at in the book. Uh, she was writing about what we can call the hardcore era, even if not all the music in Puncture was, was hardcore by any means. Now, this interview you were about to hear was actually conducted in two sessions or installments. We did the first one, and um, I realized in listening back to it that there were some uh, questions I'd asked that didn't really connect. And there were some other questions I could have asked and, and didn't. So the second time we talked, I went back and had a chance to ask some of those questions. One of those questions or a series of questions had to do with venues and uh, basically places in, uh, in San Francisco during that, uh, that period, say 82 to 84, 85. And it's kind of unintentionally funny in that I keep asking about places and she keeps saying, no, I didn't really like that place. Um, but through the course of uh, that little segment, we do still get a, a nice little tour of, of some of the venues, whether it's the Sound of Music, the Tool and Die, On Broadway, The Stone, etc. I think what comes through in this interview is something that um, I also you know, picked up on and appreciated in Patty Sterling's writing for Puncture, and that is uh, her honesty. I uh, never get the sense that she is posturing or really mincing words. Certainly was enthusiastic about the music that she was enthusiastic about, but if she didn't like something, she would say so. And um, I, I appreciate that. She was uh, by no means a, a careerist or uh, someone who was looking to necessarily make a name for herself. She just had something to say about this music in this particular time, and she did so, and did so uh, in a way that I, I found very helpful. I will include a link in the show notes where you can uh, find the book, Puncture the First Six Issues, but you can also just go ahead and search Puncture the First Six Issues and you'll probably be able to find it. Um, but again, thank you to Patty Sterling for this interview and I'll go ahead and get out of the way here.
Well, I was born in San Diego. My family lived there till I was 10 in North County. But we had pretty much to leave because my dad couldn't hold down a job. He was a pretty bad alcoholic. And he decided to buy some, some land. He got some really cheap land in Cave Junction, Oregon, a tiny town in Southern Oregon. And we and I had animals and we lived in the woods pretty much till I was 16. And his, his drunkenness, he was a very bad drunk. And I don't know how he got any money, but from his family, I think. But I, I just started fighting with him constantly. And I couldn't really run away because there's nowhere to run to. And I finally forced my mom to get a um, to, to divorce him and get out of there. And he was selling the land and leaving anyway. I had brothers and sisters. So my mother and I started moving and we went to San Luis Obispo. And then, and meanwhile, I got anorexia nervosa pretty bad and major depression. And um, I, my father moved to Coos Bay, Oregon with my siblings. And I made her move up back up there. And that's when I was the sickest. And I ran away from home once. And I went to the hospital a few times. And then we moved to, um, I think I, I moved to Eugene, Oregon and stayed with family friends for a while. And then moved to Grants Pass where my mother had moved to and stayed with her in um, Graduated from high school there. Um, I went to five different high schools. It was sort of all over the place. Wow. And then, um, oh, and then, then she moved to San Jose. So I followed her down there and ended up in San Francisco instead in 1978. And I worked as a cook and went to the Art Institute part-time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then I... I think it says in the intro of the book. Yeah, I was like painting. I always painted. I always did art late at night, mostly. And I listened to um, some radio. I lived like on Russian Hill with some with a flatmate. And uh, a radio show played an album every day, every night at midnight. And one night they played Patti Smith album. And I completely flipped. I thought, oh, my God, i but like I said, I felt like I was looking in a mirror for the first time and it absolutely changed me. I mean, it affected me so much. I think I just turned into a punk at that moment. And um, then I quit my job and I went, I flew to London and I walked around looking at punk things in 78 in London. <laughs> then I went to Switzerland and I came back and ended up in... Um, I think I was in Solana Beach. I, I just moved everywhere. It was wow. horrible because I stayed with family, friends, and things. And um, then I went to Australia after living in Solana Beach and working at McDonald's a little bit. Um, I went to Australia to Melbourne to visit a friend who I'd known in one of my high schools, Australian guy who was an exchange student. And who had named me Peace Sterl. Oh, okay. um, 
uh, I went to Sydney and looked at the weird punk, punk stores, punk fashion stores in Sydney. Then I went out back and um, I came back. Let me see. I flew back to L.A. and went. I think I ended up in Coos Bay again at my with my dad, my dad's house. But I, I moved out and lived on the campus of a community college and went to school for a year doing art and um, French and writing and stuff like that. Just dorky community college. That was about 1980, I think. Then school was over. I didn't know what to do. There were no jobs at all. So I, um, I joined the Air Force. I, well, I, I passed the test and was accepted in Air Force Intelligence. My sister did the same thing. But when I went to, um, to Portland, I took the bus to Portland to start to get ready to go to boot camp. And I had to sign all these papers and do all this health health stuff. And I re- I was shocked. And I realized when I read the papers, they wanted me to sign. I, I just said, no way. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And especially with my anorexia and everything. And my I had um, and insomnia and all that, too. Um, I thought, this is not the place for me. So I said, sorry. And they sent me back to Coos Bay. And meanwhile, my mom was in San Jose still. So I went back down there and started working um, at a branch of the same restaurant I'd been working in San Francisco, The Good Earth. And then started writing for, um, started going to show. I lived downtown I moved out away from my mom and lived downtown San Jose and near the university. And I went to free shows at the university. I saw you two, which was boring. <laughs> I saw, um, I saw some punk shows and I totally loved them and I thrashed and I had fun. And then I met um, a guy, Tim Tanuka, who was right. doing um, the Ripper magazine. And I started writing um, reviews for him. And he took me to um, San Francisco to the MAB to see a, um, a black flag show. And he introduced me to um, Henry Rollins. And I thought, this is so cool. I love, I love this punk scene at the MAB and everything. And I started driving up from San Jose every week to go to Dead Kennedy's shows. And I, and I said, this is stupid. I'm going to live here. So I, I found an ad for the Art Institute, from the Art Institute, someone, a woman um, looking for a flatmate in Lower Knob Hill on the um, Polk Street side. So I moved there and then started working at the same restaurant I'd worked at before, the Good Earth in North Beach or North, North Point and going to punk shows constantly because um, it wasn't that far from the MAB. And, and then I was there ever since. <laughs> then we started a bunch of connections, got me to meet. Um, it's in that book, in the intro, right. got me to meet um, Catherine. And we started the magazine. And um, she didn't go out to shows that much, very much at all. But um, I was always going out. And I started taking pictures mostly a lot and writing reviews. 
and I felt absolutely crazy about, um, I, I got away from like hardcore punk and um, got more into the sort of the rough trade scene, rough trade records with right. um, English stuff, well, British stuff and um, reggae dub stuff like that and crass um, English bands, a lot of English bands and local. Uh, I was completely in love with the Toiling Midgets. And I I loved Flipper too, but Flipper was re- got really popular. They just people came to see them, flocked to see them eventually. The sleeping, the toiling midget, <laughs> sleeping midget. Where, yeah, <laughs> I know. Never got nearly as popular. I felt that they were that there was something rather unstable about them and their past and everything. I'm not sure why. I guess I just the drug thing. The, I don't, it's like, I don't know for fact anything, but um, the bands always got reputations like Flipper, of course, and Toiling Midgets, they got that reputation. But when um, Aaron Gregory joined, became the bass player, he seemed really approachable to me. So I finally sort of hooked into them through him. To, to be able to write write about them and learn more about them. But I was terrified of, of meeting any of them, sort of. I knew stuff about Right. So you kind of got there and saw them during the Ricky era, but then after Ricky, probably more after uh, Ricky was singing with them. Um, well, he was there like off and on. He'd sing with them sometimes and sometimes not. And... Um, I sort of got fed up with him and I knew he was a really wonderful, he had an incredible golden voice, gorgeous voice. And with the sleepers, listening to old sleep, to sleepers records, he could actually sing a whole song sort of, but um, it, it felt like when he tried to sing with the toiling midgets, everything just sort of, failed his voice he he couldn't um he had this gorgeous voice but he couldn't um compose anything with it really maybe it was just after time over time he was falling apart So this anthology does the first six issues, but before it relocated to Portland and before you stopped writing for it, there were still other issues. And I guess I was curious, what was the decision behind only doing the first six issues? Like what? Yeah, that's a good, I think, well, that um, Steve Connell, who ended, who worked for Rough Trade and they ended up getting married. um, He pretty much took over as the editor, well, co-editor with her. Except he he always called her the editor because she didn't he probably didn't want to make her mad. He said she was the boss, and he had amazing technical and editing and connection skills and and ads and everything. Just a all around brilliant guy. He pretty much stepped in after the sixth issue, I think, and we started instead of doing it by hand and at our office, 
they printing printing at the office building at her office building downtown and we started using commercial printers more and I, I started traveling an awful lot so I was not there a couple of nights a week like a, a couple of days a week like I used to be when I was just being good and staying home and they they lived together so they were there full time and um I would usually just start sending stuff from overseas, sending work from overseas. So that's, I think, when he moved in and started taking charge, he sort of wanted to throw the rest in the, <laughs> throw the previous stuff in the garbage because it wasn't that great compared to what he could do. But instead of doing that, he decided just to print out the book. So it sounds like it changed in a few different ways, changed visually, changed in terms of the contents. And the cost uh, of making it and stuff. Cost of making it. Okay. Yeah, they sort of invested and got a lot more ads and were able to pay for stuff more. He was the sort of the businessman behind it all. It was a fairly small operation, Puncture, compared to something like Maxim Rock and Roll. Yeah. Yeah, it was just yeah, they had like a crowd, I think. And they had like radio and um tons of I don't know, punks help. They were like, I don't know, a community or something, a big community. Well, we were just real small and just pretty much the two of us and just like a few more um, people that like um, Neo and Maddie and Alan that um, had really nothing to do with that hardcore scene. And... um, yeah, I, I I can see why they had those boor- those um, sort of boring reviews because you get just absolutely um, buried with CDs and um, records and things to review, tapes and stuff that want to be reviewed. You get them in the mail. And so they were probably trying to be fair and um, review everything so they would just whip out anything about them say they'd they'd listen to it for two minutes and say this sounds like so and such and such this sounds like such and such yeah because that we really got buried too but um but you wouldn't um just dutifully go through everything it was it was a matter of of picking out what you actually uh cared about yes were there specific influences like writers that you liked whether they were music writers or other kinds of writers writers hmm I never thought about anything when I wrote anybody or anything I just sort of sat late at night with a notebook and spewed out words like a therapy or something but my favorite writer at the time was probably Anthony Burgess if that means anything well how much writing had you done before uh before puncture I I'd written some reviews for Ripper magazine. And that was about it. But but I, I was always sort of a, a a good writer, I guess. In in when I was growing up in school. But um the teachers always the teachers would sit me in the back of the class and make me write stories while they were t- teaching grammar to the other kids. Stuff like that. Okay. So but it wasn't something that you um I'd been pursuing now. I was always into fine art, oil painting, art, 
sculpture, things like that. And I never really, it's like suddenly when I moved to San Francisco, I started trading my art for writing little by little and started doing writing and writing all the time compulsively. Well, before I'd been doing painting and sculpture and stuff. Was there any sort of national community or regional community that that you felt any sort of uh, kinship with in terms of, you know, either other publications or places where you all had communication with, with people or any kind of larger audience? Or how did you feel that you related in any broader sense like that, if that question makes any sense? Um, yeah, it does. Um, I don't really think so. Not at the time that I was writing for it, mostly. Um, up until like the seventh issue or eighth issue. Um, and then I started traveling so much that I wasn't really there. And that's when um, uh, uh, Catherine married um, Steve. Steve and Catherine got married and he pretty much took over. Then it got really a college radio lean and they were reviewing songs and stuff and with writers that became serious writers eventually. And I didn't really know anything about the music they were writing and, but a lot of other people did and I was more and more distanced. And, but when I was there, I guess maybe like, I know in, in Australia, we had a lot of um, fans in Australia and some writers from Australia, Sydney, because they have an absolutely amazing punk scene going on down there. Not hardcore scene at all. Just an absolute weird scene, unlike anything I'd seen in in the U.S. Was that uh, SPK a part of that? Um, SPK might have been. But I guess I'm thinking a lot of, well, a birthday party. Oh, oh okay. You know? okay. And... Okay. Um, what was the one after birthday party? Good old Nick Cave. Oh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Okay. Bad Seeds, right. yeah. And the, I don't know. I, I went there and I saw tons of local bands, very weird local bands in Sydney. And then there were the pop bands that, that were my friends, like the Canaan's and Rabbit's Wedding. Canaan's are always had a good following and they're still doing stuff now but um, I don't know if we ever had maybe flipper because um Paula's uh, uh, Paula was um boy was girlfriend with um girlfriend of Bruce Luce right and so we had that sort of family connection with them and it wasn't very good unfortunately. <laughs> and Catherine of course all angry and worried all the time Paula I gather that you and Paula were, were roughly the same age and then she was involved with black humor at the time and that, yeah but, but they were more they were more of a recording project than a live band or did they did they play live much they played live a little and that's when she was mostly involved I think because she was a vocalist and I think she played bass. I'm not sure. And then they changed. They became Nimbus. Okay. Which, okay. which I think toured more. 
Yeah, black humor had this weird guy. I can't remember his name. Bald guy. Older. They were another one who, um, gosh, were they, they were hardcore, the hardcore era, but very different music. Uh, oh, God, they were different. Yeah. yeah. They were very <laughs> strange. Good for them. And then other people have told me that Paula was a big influence on on uh, Courtney Love. <laughs> oh God, yes. Is it, but what what can you tell people about uh, oh. about Paula or any or or um, her creative side or her music in in that period? Were you two were pretty good friends? Um. Or, oh God, it was really, and it was hard. Very hard because I was there all the time, and often, she, and she, when she wasn't living somewhere else, she was crashing out at Paul, at um, Catherine's apartment. And Catherine and I were sort of doing a business, and Paula was there. Paula's was her daughter, and I didn't know how to treat her, and she was usually having a very rough time. Um. And, and, and Catherine was, they were often fighting and I didn't know how to take a side or, or just to uh, stay out of it. And Paula was obviously not on that good terms because of what she was doing, her health and everything. And um, so we didn't become... I mean, we were acquaintances and, and, but I didn't know what to, to think about. I felt sorry for her a lot of the time, but I also got really angry and impatient with her a lot of the time. Sometimes I felt like she was acting like an immature brat. Other times I thought she was being abused by her mom. I, I don't know. A lot of times I said, I thought she was in real trouble and she needed help. I didn't know how Catherine could, could help her. And probably Catherine didn't know either. And, um, but after Catherine died and even before, I don't know, before she died, um, Paula and I contacted a lot more and talked a lot more like online um, by email and, and stuff. And we're pretty good friends now no distant she lives up in portland i feel bad for her having to live up in portland because <laughs> i don't i didn't like living there um and courtney love oh yeah i remember one day i came in and courtney love and paula were sitting on sitting on the floor in the living room while we were trying to work and they were giggling and acting weird and i and I thought this, is this woman, this Courtney Love woman is the most annoying person I've ever met. And she's making Paula worse. And I wonder how long she's going to be staying there. I think she stayed there for, for a while. But um, I don't know. That's all I can think of right now.
one thing I didn't ask you about was a few of the different, uh, let's say, venues or places. And I don't know, I, I'm just kind of have a short informal list. Uh, you could tell me maybe like what you remember or anything, anything okay. that comes to mind. Uh, one would be, well, the Tool and Die. I never went there. It was on Valencia Street, I think. But I never went there. I think it was sort of mostly pre-me, sort of, it was mostly happening I don't know, even though my friends talk about it a lot. It's something I never went to. Was the Broadway more central in terms of where you were seeing shows? Yeah, early early on, yeah. Yeah, so there was the on-Broadway and the Mabuhe, and it seems like the on-Broadway would have the bigger shows at that point. I remember, it's, it seemed like in the early 80s, the Mab was like sort of the only place where punks were playing. And then suddenly the on-Broadway punks and, and more shows were playing that's what it seemed to me or maybe i just wasn't aware of it it was ridiculous but it, all of a sudden everything moved to the on broadway too and yeah the on broadway was sort of classier and the mab was dirty punk but um on broadway would have cool you know visiting bands that weren't punk like i saw violent femmes there i'm not sure who else I saw a lot of people there, but Violent Films, that sort of band. Okay. And then across the street was the the stone. Um, and yeah. the way the way I've heard it described is basically there was the punk side of the street and the metal side of the street. Uh, in a sense where where the punk bands would play the either on Broadway or in the Mabuhe, and then the stone would be either hair bands or the beginnings of the Metallica kind of thrash scene? Well, yeah, it was, it was Bill Graham place and everybody hated Bill Graham, especially me. <laughs> and, but it was weird. And I sort of, I, I became SST bands would always play there. And I, I was always, it sort of made me mad at SST for always playing at the Bill Graham place. And they made me also think, yeah, well, SST can keep their their L.A. thrashers over there, their deadly L.A. thrashers down there over at the, the, stone, the stone and not send them over to MAB where they hurt people. So what about the VATs? Did you ever no, spend any I was time not, there? I was not a VAT rat or anything. I never went there, but I knew a lot of people that were the dead. I was, I'm, I'm pretty, the whole time I was living there, I, I felt like I was a pretty, what would you call it? Sort of straight, straight girl or something. Sort of like Catherine. Okay. It's like we, we both like didn't do drugs and go out and get drunk and, and hang out with, with the bat rats and stuff. And I was always sort of like that. I didn't ever go wild. And I always felt sort of like a wuss about it or a nerd. Maybe I'm, I was more of a nerd. I don't know. But not as much of a nerd as she was. <laughs> what about the farm? Was that a And the farm or? was something I really didn't want anything to do with because it was all peace punk. Not peace punk, but it was the biker. The biker? The, the messenger? My friend, I have a friend who used to be a, a messenger 
back then and and he was at the farm all the time and the the kind of bands that played at the farm I had no interest in and I wasn't really into a communal sort of neo hippie scene the only time I ever went to the farm was because um, I guess Mark Pauline um Oh, yeah. Had a um a studio has a had a studio there a warehouse where he made his um huge machines that killed th- that destroyed things and I went and William Burroughs had a birthday party there one night so a friend and I went down there and I thought it was fabulous on the seeing all Mark Pauline's machines up close and everything but that was all I ever did about the farm i guess i'm okay. a bit of a snob <laughs> about that yeah my yeah. friend is a total completely different than me anyway yeah well the farm was before my time but i visited subterranean and uh, at some point they i don't know if it was late 80s that they moved into that general vicinity um hmm. I believe, well, let's say 82, 83, their headquarters was on on Valencia. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a little bit in the book about that, people talking about working there. And uh, there was a storefront, but it wasn't like a major. Yeah, I sort of remember that in the early 80s. Okay, yeah. And then they they relocated. So when I visited, when I first interviewed Steve Tupper, it was 2004. And that was at the subterranean warehouse. And uh, I went back there and... 2016 just kind of wandered in and still there hmm. uh, I'm not sure about today but uh yeah it was in that area and you know from what I understood the farm was was right next to that um uh and then yeah, yeah general Petra- hospital Petra- right right yeah yeah now let's see other what about um what about the East Bay Ruthie's Ruthie's in yeah I don't I don't think so. I think the only let me see. I went to the um the stone that's over there, Keystone, Keystone Berkeley. Okay. I think that was the only place I went there a few times. I saw um the Mekons there once. Then I'm oh no, the Keystone and yeah, and the Keystone in Palo, Palo Alto. There's yeah. another one. And I saw um I saw Neil Young play there. Yeah, Neil Young and his entire band, because my boyfriend dragged me there. I saw Neil Young at another time when he played solo with a vocoder, and I thought that was fabulous, fantastic. I think that was in San Francisco. But Uh, yeah, Keystone Keystone Palo Alto, I saw. That was when he had done the the, uh, trans album. Yeah, I saw him. I I, I thought that was in San Francisco. I think it was the Keystone where I in Palo Alto is where I saw him and the whole band. So I saw him twice. Was the 10th Street Hall? I went to 10th Street Hall once, I think. I'm not sure who I saw there. Um, I went to, later on, I used to go to graffiti a lot. I liked that place a lot on Valencia. Sound of Music, of course. Oh right, okay. I went there a few several times. I loved that place. Um, it was a storefront in the Tenderloin, in a very in sort of like the the 
grossest area in San Francisco. Still is really gross. I remember seeing the gun club there and I just, it was such a good show. What about um, club foot and um, other stuff Um, down in that part of town? No club foot. That was on third, third street. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was only there once. I didn't hang out there at all because it was sort of far away. You had to take the 15 third bus. That was a long drive. And I only went there once with some friends to see trial and crucifix. How did, how did that fit into to things from your perspective? Yeah, that, that was my, my crass, crass side with Maddie Lyon and, and, and her rough trade thing. And she was into that um, crass, crass band movement, crass label. And Trial was, I'm not sure if they were on, I'm not, not sure what label they were on, but Crucifix played with them sometimes. And they were, a, a, they were on a crass label or they were supported by crass or something like that. Yeah, Crucifix was great. They were both younger, and um, a lot of them were from the East Bay. Hmm. Right? Yeah, Is yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So, so Thera, I think some of Crucifix worked at this um, restaurant in um, this famous restaurant in Berkeley. There were cooks there. I can't remember the name of it now. It's a big famous place, um, and I. I didn't, I think I didn't, I wasn't really that interested in try all that much, except that I liked the idea that they were this peace punk band. Yeah. And, but I loved Crucifix music and um, they all dressed in black and um, Neo and Maddie and all the crass people dressed in black and they tried to be vegetarians and, and stuff, but um I did lots of drugs anyway, stuff like that. Uh, I don't know why I did drugs or or crucifix, probably not, but other people I'm thinking of. A trial trial was the kind of band that I mean their their sound was one thing, but their content was with you know, their content was very sort of serious, sort of political. Um uh, well, very serious political um, self. They took themselves very seriously. And I think that's one thing that you can't really get that excited. I don't know. I couldn't get excited about them that way. Um, Did you but, feel like the midgets took, I mean, the midgets weren't no, the midgets, a lot of humor, but how, how would you... Uh, how do you see them in that in that light as far as I always I always thought that they were absolutely lost in their amazing creativity and they might take themselves theories seriously but they were art they were really I thought they were like composers or like uh, gorgeous composers um that their music was was sort of magical when it came out, when it when it would come out when they were playing. And 
that's what they like to do, to hear, to create like that. I think they were just real art. They're just artists. And um, um, incredibly unique that way. And that's why Ricky wasn't really that necessary with them. Um, I think they, they were real artists. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a lot going on at this time. I, I don't know. I was trying to kind of put a put a bow on it or figure out a way to sort of uh, orient or frame things because you know, puncture is not a, a punk magazine. It says a magazine of punk culture, as it says, yeah. but but you know, at, at the same time, in at least in San Francisco, you had Rough Trade, you had Veil and Research, you had Maximum Rock and Roll, Hardcore. Flipper was their own kind of thing. The midgets, their own kind of thing. And in some ways, these different things could overlap a little bit. But in other ways, it, it seems like they were all their own little little orbits. Oh, yeah. That's why I felt sort of odd about um, my position. Because um, I, wasn't, I wasn't a member of any um, particular scene at all. I was drawn to all these different things. And there wasn't, there was no such thing as a puncture scene, I guess. <laughs> um, no, of course not, because puncture was Catherine, and Catherine was not easily approachable, and she didn't really go out and do stuff and meet things, and she she sort of had her own personal life. She wasn't a punk at all, a punk rocker or anything. A punk, like I, I was a punk pretty much. I thought. But she was just a writer. She just wanted to, she pretty much just wanted to um, have her own magazine. And because her daughter was into, was a musician with punk, punk bands and everything. And I, I think she figured that was the new big happening thing. So she wanted to do the magazine about that. And that's why she needed somebody like me. Even though I was, <laughs> I was, not a big scenester like she probably wanted but she went out and got other writers tons of more she made connections with more people she did a good job of contacting radio stations and after she quit her job especially and lived off of the savings from her motorcycle crash the um the not the savings the Right. award for her right. motorcycle crash did, did you ever then did you ever wonder apart from what you just told me as an explanation for it but like like why of all things she was doing uh, like a, a punk magazine as opposed to a cooking magazine or an architecture magazine did it oh god did, did it oh. did it seem like did it seem like she actually did like like the the music or was was it more like she's sort of perplexed fascinated by this culture or see she came from a background of being um um sort of a the sort of a political activist very leftist and marxist and everything she she lived 
she was married and lived in Manhattan like for a long time, I guess. Well, during the 60s. I think that's when, yeah, and that's when Paula, her daughter, was born. And they had like a lot of cat tall Paula told me that they'd have a, like a lot of political people come by and cool people and everything. And they were sort of a trendy household. And um then when she got divorced, she um she hooked up with a, um, she, and she worked for Penthouse Magazine, maybe after she got divorced. Um, so she knew about um, working at a magazine and um, she ended up running off with a journalist in England who was a, a sports journalist, a, a motorcycles specifically, and that's where she got in motorcycles. And um, uh, her son, she had a son and he got, he died in a motorcycle accident in England. And I think that's when they, that's when she moved back to, um, to the United States. And, it, but instead of going to, to New York, to Manhattan, she moved to San Francisco to try to start over again. And, um, I, I think from living in New York and her experience there and her political views and everything, made her sort of lean toward um, the new reactionary stuff going on in San Francisco and that punk rock and that her daughter was involved. That seemed to be a movement that appealed to her a bit, though she didn't really want to get involved exactly with the, she just wanted to be the, the editor and not a participant too much. That's, it strikes me as, um, you know, it's a, it's a strange perspective to have, or a, just a different perspective to have. But on the other no hand, kidding. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, there were other people who were quite a bit older than yeah. you know, Tim Yohannan. Oh yeah, older. Tim Yohannan, for goodness sake. Bell was older, um, mm-hmm. um, whatnot. So yeah. And then even, uh, well, and then even in the the very early uh, Mabuhe days, a, a lot of the the bands were, you know, crime. With nineteen seventy seven, most sure. of those guys, they were almost thirty, uh, most of them, and uh, that's true too. With you know, with say with television, you know that, you know, realizing that Tom Verlaine was seventy three, uh, you kind of do the math and realize that yeah, he yeah. was he was almost thirty, a generation, so. almost a generation older than me. Well, than us. Well, yes, well, yeah, it, yeah. It didn't really start to get really young and, until it seems like until hardcore. I mean, well, the, some of the bands were young. The Sleepers were pretty young. Negative Trend, those guys were young and uh, you know late teens for the most part in in the late seventies. But yeah, it was it wasn't a youth. Yeah, you didn't have that real. Uh, again, from from what I gather, and until like the until really the hardcore and it became more of a, a suburban thing that was yeah. reaching, reaching a wider as opposed suburban to suburban male mostly. Yeah. Um, as far as like making it challenging for, for women to participate either as far as, uh, you know, as musicians or, or just as observers, is it fair to say that hardcore had a negative influence on that or, or pushed women into other areas? Yeah, I think so. 
And personally, that's how I felt at the time, a lot. And, and I always blamed LA for it <laughs> at the time. Los Angeles, assholes. They come up here and they can't, and it's, it's mostly from because of brute physical strength of them getting up of these big men, big guys, skinheads coming in and um, being extremely violent on the on the stage, on the on the dance floor. And so it wasn't just women that were pushed out. It wasn't. It was guys that didn't want to be violent too. But I felt like it was a lot women because they didn't see many women in the bands either too right right so i just didn't take it seriously i stopped taking it seriously at all i had nothing to say about them yeah but at the same time there you were at um the eastern front and at least uh checking in on some of this uh some of the bands were great so it was a matter of drawing a distinction between or oh yeah the band the some of the bands versus the overall crowd. Um, would that would that be a way to characterize hmm, it? Or that's a really good way. That's a really good, interesting. Hmm. I. I guess the crowd that they would attract, and a lot of it was. Maybe it was, just. I, maybe I was taking it extremely personally because I used to be able to go into the mob, the mab and pogo like crazy and people would help each other get up and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden everything changed with, when these hardcore LA bands came up and, and most of the people started standing back, the locals standing back instead. So I just grew very angry at them. So Puncture moved up to Portland and you were no longer writing for them at that point. Is that? I was just very rarely writing. For, I, I would send articles from overseas wherever I was. I would send um, show reviews or scene reviews or something like a feature on Zimbabwe and stuff on New Zealand and uh, Australia and the Philippines even and China. And um, then when I, I, after the nineties, I didn't really travel anymore, but they were in Portland and I eventually moved to Portland. <laughs> I eventually moved up there, but I really didn't um, connect. Well, I, I connected with them. I saw them and visited them a lot, but I didn't uh, really do much writing. And they, they, they just pretty much closed up and they, cause um, Steve was fluent in German and he did projects of translating trans for publishers of translating books into German and stuff like that, or German into English. And he wanted to start his own um, publishing company and publish books on music. And then eventually they started doing crime fiction and stuff. That's still going versus chorus press. And a lot of old puncture writers um, 
have books published on it, actually. Some of the old puncture writers ended up quite well off as writers. But anyway, I hmm. probably went off off what you asked me. Uh, well, I, I didn't really give you a, I was, I guess, but I guess, let me, yeah, let me actually try to re ask a proper question. Because uh, I'm here, I'm looking at this um, 1986 thing that you wrote on uh, Subterranean where you uh, interviewed Steve Tupper. And I'm trying to, I was trying to figure out, you know, obviously, clearly you were still writing for Puncture in 1986. I'm not sure if Puncture was still based in San Francisco in 1986 um, or when it, when it relocated. Um, mm. but, oh. but anyway, but, but also there in this article, um, you know, obviously you've been following things pretty closely for several years at that point and then in the article steve tupper himself is saying um things uh let me just read a quotation from him and from this uh interview i actually cited this in the book he says punk has degenerated severely 1986 is to 1977 as 1975 was to 1967 that is, just as the hippies degenerated into boring nothingness by the mid-70s, the punks have now gone the same way. A lot of people are just waiting for something new. Um, I don't know. Uh, so I guess maybe maybe I could throw that out. Does, does that seem like he was being overly pessimistic, or did, you, did it seem to you like uh, there was less interesting stuff happening? Oh, I agree with him. I mean, now in retrospect, I agree with him completely, and that's why I was so distanced from then on. Okay. And I, and I, but I felt like it had a lot to do with how easy it was for anybody to record anything anymore because of CDs, how easy it was to make record CDs. And so anybody could record anything. And so a lot of mosh mash got put out there and it was so easy to get a show and anyone could do it. And so nobody really tried that hard and people stopped trying so hard or or when the internet came and it's like, forget it. But anyway, what were you saying? Oh yeah. Well, cause I mean, but that's definitely uh, true. But at that point in say 1986, it seemed like, uh, again, I mean, at that point I'm 11 years old, but I don't know anything about like uh, current music scenes, but it just seemed like there was a certain amount of burnout at that point, you know, flipper, they're basically broken up doing occasional shows. Well, the midgets are done. A lot of the even bands like Black Flag are on their last legs. Probably Jello Biafra is, is out on his own. Right. That's the the eighty six is the year the Dead Kennedys broke up, and then oh, uh, but, okay. but but um, uh, Subterranean was sort of. I, I guess the tone of that that article was that he was sort of um, exasperated and and sort of worn out from from just basically the diminishing returns of running a label and not finding as much exciting uh, music to get behind. I mean, you also had a lot of, of you know, metal coming along at that time. You know, uh, he talks in that article about being into to some rap music that was coming out. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if, uh, I guess I was trying to figure out the timeline as far as when you stop writing for Puncture or start stop writing about music was that more to do with the fact that puncture relocated or more that there was less music that was uh exciting to, or interesting to you or 
Because again, I, think- I haven't really been able to follow your writing past the end of the anthology, uh, which kind of ends in 80, 84. Anyway, uh-huh. sorry. Okay. Yeah, well, most of the writing I did after that was overseas, sending stuff from overseas. And yeah, I there was less stuff. There was definitely, I think, less music that I was interested in. There was nothing I could get excited about anymore, it felt like. And um, they hadn't, I don't think they'd relocated quite yet. And um, uh, Steve and Catherine were running Puncture with different, with a lot of new writers and they were covering music, a lot of music, but it was, it's like music. They did a, another book um, called, uh, now I can't remember the name of it. It was a puncture book about the rest of the, um, about the rest of the issues and okay. the rest of the people writing about it. Um, that had an interesting name, but I can't remember. But I, I was not, they, the music that they were covering and they wanted covered, um, I couldn't care about it all. I just was not interested in it. I kept thinking this is college, college radio or like, you know, I don't know. And um, so I just, the, I, I wanted, I liked rap and I felt like, felt like I can't write about rap in puncture and um, and I kept going away I kept going overseas I just drifted away and a, a lot of people still liked puncture a lot and, and a lot of writers kept writing for them and new writers came and were really excited about them but they were people I had absolutely nothing in common with and I felt sort of bad, but I also felt like, well, I didn't fight very hard for this. I just sort of um, deserted ship. <laughs> that that well, sounds awful. No, no, that no, that's um, it's relatable in the sense that you know it would be. I I've never been able to really like get into just writing a lot of content about music to write a lot of content about music. I, I have to get behind something. I have to be interested in it because right, right. Know, okay. there's not, it's not something, you know, there was a brief time in the early two thousands when I was freelancing somewhat, uh, uh, you know, pretty actively and writing reviews and stuff. But I realized pretty early on that it's still not close to something you can make a living on. I would have, I would have two jobs. I would do that. And then I would do like tutoring and, um, eventually started teaching and so it was not something that I saw as realistic to like make money but then I also was like after I stopped doing that I was like oh I can actually listen to music that I like that doesn't have to be Uh music (laughs) and yeah and then I can sort of follow these other pathways and not worry about the fact that I have unpopular uh tastes or or not have to to, (laughs) uh, or you know or niche taste or something like that and you know that's you know this book is a lot about about that or was definitely a, a result of that because if I'd been trying to keep up with new releases or sort of manufacture enthusiasm for uh, the flavor oh. of the month, it would have been impossible to dig I deep. In. But uh, yeah, I'm, I see this article here from uh, Willamette Week. Uh, yeah, Portland-based Puncture Magazine up the game for punk rock zines. A new anthology shows how 
And then their subheader says, it was the first to write about Guided by Voices, Jeff Buckley and Neutral Milk Hotel. And so it's like, okay, that's like 90s, like big name indie rock. Uh, I know, yeah. and uh, and but I see exactly what you're saying because like the even mid to late '80s that era when you say college radio and college rock, it's mm-hmm. kind of the era when it was becoming more business like, and certain people oh yeah were were well suited to that and functioned well in that CMJ college radio world. But for a lot of other people, it's just like, mm, this isn't what I got into this for. I'm not a, prof- you know, a professional punk or a professional, um, whatever you call it. And career uh, something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah career, career yeah. person yeah. that you had to start doing BMI and all that. So it's, it's kind of funny to see, you know, Portland based puncture. And here I am asking you about this very specific era in San Francisco that is not, uh, I mean, it's almost like a footnote in that article, uh, about, uh, about puncture. And, um, mm. did you continue to do other writing after no. Um, puncture? Okay. No, no writing at all. I, 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 I did what everyone does and try to write some fiction and things like that or travelogue stuff like that but that's not really much but um um yeah I know what you mean about now you can listen to any the kind of music you want and be drawn to and like for example right now I'm really drawn to um, a radio station in um, Australia Castlemaine New South Wales um Castlemaine Victoria that that um, puts out different shows and there's one specific show that's aboriginal music like current aboriginal music like bands and stuff that is absolutely my favorite and so i'm listening to aboriginal rock bands and country bands and things like that and i just find them fascinating and really really good and um do you still listen to, is there any stuff from say the early mid eighties? And again, not to keep, I guess I keep coming back to that era, but that still sticks with you or that, uh, or, or mm. does, is a lot of that music more stuff that you ex- experienced live as opposed to stuff that you go back to on record? I think you're right about that of live. Um, the Mekons are one band that I um, keep getting their records um and liking to li- i mean keep getting their recordings and um birthday party well it's not san francisco really but other place other people nick cave from other places like england um stuff that i really loved back then um san francisco not really i just really kept up with the twilight midgets because of Paul Hood being on Facebook, and um, and I've I've um, bought some of their stuff on Bandcamp, and I wanted to go see them last year, and I was I was going to go see them when they played in San Diego, and I got incredibly sick. I had just like a few days earlier, I'd taken my mom to the emergency room because she had a like 105 fever and she was delirious and 
she ended up having some horrible, um, what was really hot too. It was record heat in San Diego. Um, she ended up having intestinal weird problems or something. And then a few days later, I got really sick with a 105 fever. Oh, wow. And just sick. My, my stomach and intestines were just ravaged. And there was no way I could go to the show. It was horrible. I was so angry that I had gotten so sick that I couldn't go see the Twilight Midgets <laughs> um, for the first time in like 40 years. So, so you never saw them during the early 90s period? I, I don't know if you were, you said you were back and forth. So. Yeah, they had the period when, a brief period when Mark Eitzel was singing with them and then even Ricky came back. Uh, you know, they did the same kind of thing where they play, would play instrumental and they'd have a singer, the singer would go. Uh, but they they did start to bring uh, Ricky back or, you know, he was playing mm. shows with them and it was a night uh, after a show that, that he died. It um, was in the 90s? Yeah, it was 1992. Uh, he Nove- died now? November 1992. They had, okay. They had just gotten back. Well, he had just rejoined. Um, you know, they had had a record come out that year uh, with Mark Eitzel on it. But by the time the record came out, he was no longer in the band. And, and yeah. he was, you know, he I didn't quite realize, you know, he had a lot of uh, critical acclaim. You know, he had been named like songwriter yeah. of the year in Rolling Stone in 1991. And American Music Club was um, mm-hmm. signed to or about to be signed to a major label. And so, um, you know, that that probably helped th- uh, at least helped get them the you know the toiling midgets signed to this to the label that they were signed to matador but at the same time it didn't really help like especially when that record comes he out and, then, and, he, and he's and he's not on the tour and then it kind of obscures like from you know what they were doing and then so yeah they were going to have ricky you know he did do some shows with them and there's one recording uh uh, there's some they did some recordings with him uh, as well in that period and then yeah he he, he had an over uh, he overdosed um that night after the show and it was like november november 1992 okay and so yeah there's it's a sad story um i shouldn't uh, that it seems like at every at every point uh you know it's almost like a cur- the curse of ricky um yeah, you know, that kind of touched everything that he I heard that a lot <laughs> that he touched, and uh, to yeah. the point where I almost started to wonder if it was, you know, it was contagious enough that I was getting some of it through. Um, because no, I no. worked with I worked with Michael, and you know, we had our we had found a publisher, um, you know, for that, and then what was that well, right, but before that, there was um, the Feral House and Adam Parfrey was, in, was interested in publishing it, and um, Michael knew Adam Parfrey from. Uh, some at some point, uh, oddly enough, Adam Parfrey had managed the Toiling Midgets back in the early '80s. So small world, but anyway, mm-hmm. he was interested, and he had talked to Michael on the phone, and I had emailed with him a little bit, and then the next thing we know, it goes silent, and then the next thing we know, we find out that he had had a stroke and died. Oh dear! Yeah, so that was, and then when that <laughs> happened, I thought this is really for real. Yeah, like. Um, you know, all, all the stories Michael told me about, you know, this, we almost had this happen and then this happened, <laughs> you know, and, and that's kind of like the, the running theme throughout the book. And there, there is maybe some uh, truth to the idea that you, to some extent you make your own luck, but in other, 
in another sense, sometimes it, gosh, it really does feel like there's almost a curse, a curse, uh, that, that has carried through, uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how literally I mean that, but <laughs> yeah, I know that sort of keeps feeding and feeding and taking. Yeah. But I'm, you know, but I, I think it's, you know, I think there's something to be said for, um, I don't know. I think those, a lot of those guys were, were the, you know, they're the real deal. And, and I think things don't come easy to people who are, who are, um, I don't know. They're, they're not, none of them here. I'm talking about like the sleepers and really flipper negative trend, toiling midgets, that whole group of bands that, you know, there's a lot of, of rough stuff that's happened, but you know, um, they, they were, uh, I don't know the the essence that comes out of that music, even though if there wasn't a whole lot of it that made it on record, I think it's, it's uh, unique in that era. And it, um, well, you know, it's, it's always been kind of under-recognized. Well, that's sort of what a lot of composers, like old composers from hundreds of years ago, have horrible stories, tragic stories behind them. And they never got famous and artists and stuff. And but their music is brilliant and fine today, and everybody loves it. And but their their personal um, existence was a nightmare, and they were never able to go that far. And maybe that's what people like the Toiling Midgets are going to be like. <laughs> 